tell this to Morehouse students all the time. I say, you should be very concerned that people who have such disdain for black people have such interest in you. Hello, welcome. I'm Adrian Dobb. And I'm Moira Donegan. And whether we like it or not, we're in bed with the right. Today we are talking to Seda Grundy, who is the author of a really amazing book of sociology called Respectable. It is about the politics and paradox in making the Morehouse man, about respectability politics and masculinity at uh, Morehouse College. And Seda, I'm so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. This is really exciting for me. I have no idea how you all came across this book, but you say all the most flattering things to me when you (laughs) say you want to talk about gender politics and black masculinity. I mean, I, I have to say, the book's been on my radar for a little while, and we knew the moment I cracked it open, I was like, oh yeah, this is extremely our shit. We need, we need to talk to her right away. <laughs> well, this podcast, I mean, it's, you know, for me, knowing this podcast exists is really amazing. It's really inspiring to see academics do, like, the stuff that we care about. And always, you all have such a breadth of just really caring about knowledge far beyond sort of the, the disciplinary sort of boundary, Right. Which I think all this stuff, when it actually gets into the real deal steps of the capital types of politics, that stuff really matters. Well, thank you. And I think it's been interesting for us to come across your book because, you know, talking about gender conservatism with Adrian, especially in like this moment, this like post-2016 moment, we've talked a lot about whiteness, you know, how gender conservatism has been used and is being used to reify whiteness and to try and define its barriers. And you've come at this in a very different way. So can you tell us a little bit about your own history with Morehouse? So the reason I like the title of your podcast so much is because you know, when you talk about getting in bed in the right, you have to also have to talk about what bedfellows the right makes. And when it comes to black masculinity, it makes bedfellows across the left and the right for this idea of fixing black men into sort of respectable black men. So, so young black men in particular in this country are looked at as a problem population, but that has consequences for all young black men, not just those who are in peril. And so I took really the other side of that paradox of black men and talking about black men who are, uh, you know, upwardly mobile, who are college educated, who represent the crust of the sort of the foothills of making a new black male elite, right? And so it really is what happens when you think you're fixing the problem of young black men by creating solutions to that problem, right? And in that, I swing a really hard feminist axe. And I say that there's actually problems created from narrowly defining what masculinity is acceptable for Black men who are good, air quote, Black men. And this is something you have a little bit of experience with. Way too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're... You're an alum of Spelman, right? So your early intellectual life was shaped by proximity to this institution. Yes. So, you know, Black colleges like Spelman, like Morehouse, like Howard, like Hampton, they have a very outsized sort of influence on Black communities. In fact, there's lots of literature about Black colleges are not just educational institutions. They're also community institutions. They also create Black politics. They have a larger role to larger communities than even, you know, white elite schools do, right? And so Morehouse's sort of looming presence, his looming influence 
on what black manhood should be is far larger than the campus. So, you know, even as a little girl, my, you know, I have, you know, multiple uncles who went to Morehouse. Morehouse was always a thing, right? We see it on episodes of the Cosby show. We see it in reference to all these black male leaders who come out of Morehouse. You can't talk about MLK without talking about Morehouse. He and his father went to Morehouse. Julian Bond went to Morehouse. Um, the, you know, the list goes on even currently. Raphael Warnock, Herman Cain, which we don't, <laughs> you can't win them all. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there's a very long list of black male elites in their fields. Either those are civil politics elites, business elites, et cetera. So when I was at Spelman College, I started Spelman fall of 2000 to date myself. One of the first things that happened when I was a sophomore was a vicious homophobic attack on a student named Gregory Love. This made national news, partly because it was the first time that the state of Georgia was going to try a hate crime. They had a new hate crime statute. Gregory Love goes into the shower of his dormitory and he peers over one of the stalls. He says, I was just looking for my roommate and I, you know, I couldn't find my glasses. I couldn't really see. In that stall was a young man named Aaron Price. Aaron Price goes ballistic. He's yelling all these homophobic epithets. He goes back to his dorm room. He gets a baseball bat and he comes hunting for Gregory Love. And he beats, he almost murders Gregory Love, right? I think the, I think the charge was an attempted murder. It was beyond manslaughter. He leaves Gregory Love on the floor, you know, head fractured. The response that I noticed as a 19-year-old, at this point I was writing for Morehouse's student paper, the response to me was really troubling because it wasn't, wow, this should be a point to look at ourselves. How can an institution so invested in the best of Black men also be creating the worst of Black men in terms of violence or be creating an unsafe space for these types of Black men, right? You know, part of going to a Black college is it's a very utopic experience. I mean, I always say that my experience at, at we call it Spellhouse, the two colleges are so close, Spellman and Morehouse, that we often call it Spellhouse. Socially, it's kind of the same institution. I always say that Spellhouse for me was what white people must experience in America. That it was all about, you know, it was just, it was all about us. It was like, I was like, oh, this is how they feel about America, right? <laughs> and to realize that it wasn't that utopic experience for queer black people, for low-income black people, for gender non-conforming black people, that to me was just unacceptable because it meant so much to me to be safe there. So Morehouse's response to this huge case that blows up around Aaron Price is sentenced to 14 years and then in, inside of jail, he gets into another incident in which there's years added on to a sentence. Their response was, well, should we segregate, you know, the gay population? You know, should we, you know, uh, should we uh, maybe put an extra, you know, uh, a extra part of the application for gay students to apply? This was absurd to me. And it told me that they could not understand that their institutional process is what created this. This was not an aberration, right? Their idea of what Black manhood was allowed someone to say, you don't belong here at the expense of your own life, you don't belong here, right? And so that's, you know, sociologically, you know, that's what I became really entrenched in. I was, of course, writing for the student paper at the time, and I was really pretty indictful of Morehouse. And then on some Jedi mind trick, I came back my senior year and was 
Miss Morehouse College, the queen of the campus. So it's like I got these, <laughs> I got this, uh, I got Morehouse from all sides. I got to represent the college, but I also got to really understand intrinsically sort of how their cultural curriculum was just as important as their academic curriculum. And Adrian, this might be a good point for you to jump in because Seda structures her book yeah. around Morehouse's pursuit of respectability for Black men. But it's not just respectability politics the way we might usually be accustomed to using that in the vernacular. It's a very specific kind of respectability that Seda's talking about. Yeah. And you already kind of allude to what's so cool about your book, the the idea that there's a gender curriculum on top of a, like you say at some point you can fail at masculinity, yes. right? You can get expelled for failing at masculinity, which is really remarkable. Like that's, I think that's get that gets at what Moira was mentioning that like you're thinking about respectability politics in a way that I found very enlightening, but also clearly goes beyond what we tend to yeah. use it as in everyday parlance. So you do kind of distinguish between respectability politics in general, sort of the idea that we can get out of oppression by good behavior, yeah. basically, right, right. and what you call reactive respectability, which yeah. you say is, is a political project and it's institutionalized and organized. Yes. And I take it to I take you to mean that basically it is only embodied in a second step. The, as you were saying, the Morehouse structures preceded basically the way these two men ended up living it in conflict, basically. Can you say a little bit more about where did you get this idea for reactive respectability? Yes. How is it institutionalized? Yeah. So one, shout out to Black historians, because I might be a sociologist, but I'm really a closeted historian, and I'm working on a way to tell my parents. But really, it's Black historians have been talking about these campaigns that we've had historically, really, you know, pre-emancipation and post-emancipation, in which... You have to understand, so coming out of, of slavery, you know, the 15th Amendment bifurcated the race. So Black men had the right to vote and Black women didn't. So Black people are in this very, on the sort of fence about their citizenship. And so there's almost instantaneously abolitionists who are now like, okay, we put ourselves out of business with, you know, the slavery thing. Now let's switch to what we're really about, which is sort of moralizing Black people. So out of slavery, the campaign around Black morality was fierce, right? Michelle Mitchell, I believe she's still at NYU, has a book called Righteous Propagation, and it really heavily influenced me. I read this as a grad student, and I was like, oh, this is the bar for me as a Black feminist scholar. And her argument there was just, as I've said, that abolitionists who were a racial coalition instantly took to, okay, Black people have to sexually behave their way into citizenship. So that means no marrying young. You know, you know, it's funny that we talk about teen pregnancy now. They talk about teen marriage a lot coming out of right. emancipation. About women, Black women could not occupy the domestic sphere in the same way because so many Black women worked. But in almost doubling down on the femininity of Black women because we worked, right? Um, black men who were really under siege because they were voting, Right. There was a whole campaign around what was, you know, a proper behavior for black men. So that has really never died. That was a reactive, reactive respectability campaign because that was the political exigency of emancipation and of suffrage. Right. If black people are going to vote, we have to behave in a way that says we have earned this. What we see in my book is just a really contemporary iteration of that. And it's very important that we're in 2023 now because my book really starts in about 1983. So 1981 is the largest tax cut 
on in modern history, right, on record is Reagan's tax cut. It really collapses the black working class into the black poor. All these social safety debts for black households disappear. The other thing that happens is it really, again, bifurcates the race in terms of it's the first time we see black poverty being feminized. Black poverty now takes on the look of women-headed households. And the cultural consequence of that economic warfare on black on the black working class. So, you know, I always tell my students, open your smartphone right now. There's 150 jobs a woman used to do that are replaced with automation, right? All these jobs we used to have in the urban sector are eviscerated by neoliberalism and Reaganomics. The response to that is not from black leadership like, oh, wow, this is a real crisis of the black poor, particularly black women. The response is, weirdly enough, an attraction to Reaganomics in terms of this is an opportunity for black men to get into the boardroom. <laughs> that if we can just put on the pinstripe suits, you know, and, and really that what's best for the race is what's best for the top of the race. So another a book that really influenced mine was Kathy Cohen's Boundaries of Blackness. Kathy Cohen's a political science at Chicago. She's my Beyonce. <laughs> Kathy's book argues that, you know, so Michael Awkward is a political scientist as well. They're friends. And he has this really, really well-known theory called linked fate. And he's describing why Black people vote so similarly across region, across religion, across ethnicity. Black people tend to vote in large blocks. The reason for that, he said, was we, we believe that what happens to the least of us happens to all of us, that we have a linked fate ideology about the race. But Kathy Cohen comes along. She says, Well, if that was the case, then AIDS would have been at the top of the ballot for black political agendas, right? Mm -hmm. Because AIDS, you know, patient zero was a white male, we believe, but patient one was black, right? Mm -hmm. AIDS devastated black communities, right? And again, Reagan did nothing about that. So she says, if that were the case, then every pulpit, every barbershop, every, you know, Jesse Jackson, everyone else would have been talking about AIDS. But who was AIDS affecting? the hyper-marginalized Black people, queer, urban, and poor. All I did was really invert Kathy Cohen's book and say, it's not that the political agenda just hyper-marginalizes Black people sort of at the bottom of the pile. It's usurped by Black people at the top of the pile, which are Black male elites, which we tend to say that the what's best for the race is what's best for its college-educated Black men. Well, this might be a good moment to turn to Morehouse itself, which is like creating that black male elite and also creating the priorities that that put them at the center of discourses about black thriving. So can you walk us through the history of the institution really quickly? Yeah. Um, so this is, there's some things I learned about Morehouse that Morehouse doesn't tend to know about itself. So this is actually something I've become kind of fascinated about. Like black colleges often have their sort of official histories of themselves, which are actually really long processes of not talking about sometimes what really happened because that was part of our survival and part of appeasing white donors. So what really found in Morehouse College? In Augusta, South Carolina, in 18, I want to say 60. 1867, I want to say, Morehouse is founded. Mm. What happens in 1869 in Augusta, South Carolina? There's a massive race riot. Augusta, Georgia, and the town in South Carolina, right across the river, right across the Savannah River from each other. And this is really a hotbed for like 
black free people in the South. And they're having all these conversations with black people in the North, particularly through the, the American Baptist Seminary, which is a very large organization, former abolitionists, a bunch of religious leaders, white, black. Some of them are involved in Howard University. Some of them are involved in, in Spelman. All that to say, Morehouse's founders are under siege because they are having conversations about the conditions of black people in the South. That race riot runs them out of Augusta all the way to Atlanta. Why did they move to Atlanta? Because the Union barracks were in Atlanta. The last of the Union barracks in Reconstruction were still in Atlanta. They moved to the highest point in the city of Atlanta for their safety. Spelman, which is founded in 1881, moves from really down the road in Friendship Baptist Church to be next to Morehouse for safety. So the story of Morehouse, all that to say, is the story of Black safety against white violence. The institution, you know, in its 20th century iterations, it really goes, Morehouse was not the only historically Black college for men. In fact, again, stories they don't tell, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania was considered like the college for Black men. Lincoln University graduated two heads of state, the Prime Minister of Nigeria, the Prime Minister of Ghana, Langston Hughes went to Lincoln, my grandfather went to Lincoln. And so Morehouse was considered sort of a sleepier Southern preacher-centered type of college until Lincoln goes co-ed in the 1950s. And Morehouse, Morehouse sort of becomes premier as this place of like, you know, once King gets affiliated with them, Julian Bond, that whole civil rights generation, Morehouse becomes very, very larger than its size into the 1970s and 1980s. I would say that is in part because of their alliance with right-wing, you know, governance. But the story of Morehouse really is a story in which it's a school that is very imbibed with its own sense of tradition and kind of like, you know, people often describe it as like a large fraternity, right? There's a brotherhood there. But often what we call tradition and in institutions isn't actually that ancient. Traditions really change and we reinvent them. And so much of what you see at Morehouse now is not something they were doing, you know, in the 1930s and 40s. It's what they were doing in the 1980s. Mm. And that was really my, you know, call to task about these things that they say we can't change this because it's tradition, but they've changed their own traditions many times over. So Morehouse now is, it looms large, even though it has many struggles. Many Black colleges have struggles, but Morehouse has particular struggles because of what's going on with young Black men in high school. It also has struggles because of its own operation, let's be clear, its own board of trustees has caused this trouble. So some of these things are not endemic to Black men. They are endemic to Morehouse not wanting to catch up with the times. So that's such a fascinating walk through, and it, it's amazing to see how, how you describe in the book, I mean, the way that it is about an accommodation to kind of these, this donor class, which is something that all of us who work at a university know, <laughs> except that it doesn't, yeah. right? At, at Stanford, it doesn't have the additional, well, it has a racial layer because everything in the United States does, but it's not as explicit, right? Like, I think you mentioned that Morehouse didn't have a black president until the 20th century, which is like Absolutely. kind of wild. You're like, so this is very, this is very key. So going back to King's assassination. So when MLK is assassinated in 1968, this is important to Morehouse for this reason. Coretta Scott King, his widow, wants to continue his democratic socialist justice project, right? She believes that the solution to the race is from the bottom up, as he believed, right? He was very leftist, right? Yeah. So he was very anti-capitalist, very anti-militaristic. 
But another one of his lieutenants is named Andrew Young. Andrew Young goes on to be the mayor of Atlanta. Andrew Young has two, if not three, centers named after him at Morehouse. Andrew Young was always considered King's right-leaning lieutenant. In fact, of the apocryphal story goes that when King wanted to know how a speech would go over with the right, he would run it past Andy because Andy was his <laughs> sort of in-house, not a Republican, but a conservative, right? Andy Young is extremely in bed with white donorship. And I'm talking about right-wing white donors. So Dan Cathy, CEO of Chick-fil-A, the Walton Foundation, Walmart, the Walton family. Dan Cathy was the chair of Morehouse's Board of Trustees until like two minutes ago. So you're talking, look, there are people who would say, and I tell this to Morehouse students all the time, I say, you should be very concerned that people who have such disdain for black people have such interest in you, right? (laughs) And it's because, so Stanford absolutely has a donor class, but that donor class tends to be affiliated with Stanford, right? You have probably a large, you know, overwhelming majority, you know, alumni, right? You probably have people who, you know, are at least interested in sort of getting their kids in the Stanford, sort of want these favors off of Stanford. That's part of why they're in the donor class. Yeah. No, Dan Cappy's not sending his kids to Morehouse. Right. Yeah. And so, so again, the idea of fixing black men into a certain type of like, see, you know, you don't have to address, you know, mass incarceration if you just say, well, you know, the ones who are in suits are doing fine. You know, it's a it's a cultural project that is really about a neoliberal idea of black men's problems are just a matter of black men's choices. Yeah. Right. They are doing this to themselves. And so. Yeah, you have, you know, again, uh, Andy Young is really the one who's responsible for bringing not just donorship, right-wing donorship. So Betsy Davos, um, again, the Waltons, he brings all of them into Morehouse. In the book, I talked to young men who said, yeah, I was part of this sort of student troupe who we were just supposed to go, we were kind of like on tour and supposed to go around and impress these white donors with how clean and articulate we are. (laughs) (laughs) Many, many black colleges have had very unexpected white. And so, for example, we have to go back to Jim Crow. Some of the strongest advocates of HBCUs were segregationists, right? Right, right. So the the making of strange bedfellows has always been there, right? Mr. Segregation now, segregation forever, right? He was extremely, I'm talking about uh, Governor Alabama, our presidential candidate who got shot, Wallace, George Wallace. George Wallace was a very strong proponent of black colleges because he did not want to desegregate white universities. So they've always had this, this peculiar allyship, for lack of a better word. But particularly after the civil rights movement, you have a number of people who say the civil rights movement needs to grow up. We need to stop marching and we need to get into this corporate space into capitalism. And that's how you see these inroads of very far right, very wealthy donors interested in Morehouse mm. College, which again, they're not interested in any other type of black student. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that that, that donor list, if I saw that at Stanford, I'd be terrified. I mean, like only Hillsdale College probably has that donor list. My God. Well, you know, so from the left as well. So, you know, what I talk about in the book is into the Obama era, and I would say Obama sort of put his foot on the pedal of this, 
this idea of neoliberal fixes for black men. So neoliberal fixes rely on these public private partnerships. So what you know black boys really need is like, you know, you know, a corporate charter school. That's really part of the idea that black men are culturally defective. Not that, you know, basically nothing structurally needs to be addressed. Right. They're culturally defective. And therefore, that's the solution. Which is so brilliant the way you work that out in your description of the Morehouse man, which really comes across so nicely in the book. Because it's so easy to think like, oh, it's actually a traditionalist institution. But this is something we found so often in the podcast. And when people say, as you say, tradition, they mean the 1980s. Yeah. Like it's not, this isn't going back generations. This is going back one, right? Like, it's, and, you're, and you're exactly right. It's like, it's, it's the image of black masculinity, sort of the mirror image of broken windows policing. It's the mirror image of... Yes. Uh, of the Moynihan report, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like it, it's absolutely, it's meant to not raise the question of like, what is it structurally yeah. that leads to a different differential outcomes yeah. for American men and women uh, according to race, but instead kind of gets fixated on yeah. exceptions and exceptionalism and gets fixated on on kind of bootstraps, you know, uh, yes. you know, pull up, yes. your, pull up your pants rather than the bootstraps, I suppose. Yes. Absolutely that, you know, you know, the real obsession with cultural fixes to structural problems. And it's really, you know, I think my book is the very uncomfortable admission that as much as the Moynihan report was critiqued by black feminists, it was very widely accepted among not a small portion of black people, yeah, yeah. particularly black people in the upper middle class and elites, right? That this idea of like, yeah, that is what, what I hear sort of spewed at Morehouse is like just a black face on Moynihan, right? And this is sort of larger. So we're also talking about a climate black men politically that's larger than Morehouse, but particularly right now. So, you know, Trump doubled the digits that Romney had with black men. It's not a huge, you know, demographic, but it is considerable considering black women, 98% voted against Trump, right? right? At least we voted Democratic. So Trump did not do well with black women at all. We pretty much hate him. But he did have this real appeal to black men. And when we think about, you know, I love my dear, dear friend, the political historian Leah Wright-Ragour had this excellent book called The Loneliness of the Black Republican. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, this is a gender book. She's not even a gender scholar, but I'm like, this to me is a, it's a book about black male attraction to the right. What does Trump really lend black men? Part of it is that Moynihanian thing of like, see, it's black women just won't let you be men, right? Black women are just right, emasculating right. of you. And what Trump sort of gave them was a sense of like, you, you know, I, you too can sort of be, you know, a patriarchal asshole. And it's only black women holding you back. I always <laughs> say there's like, if you were to draw a chiasmic square and you put white men, white women, black women, black men, you have white women who say, you know, if it just weren't for gender, we'd be in power, right? So their allegiance to white men has always been there. And then you have black men who say, if it just weren't for race, we'd be in power. And so for both of those demographics, the appeal is not always to eradicate someone like Trump or any of these leaders. It's that they're just one step away, right? right? right. It would be, you know, even, you know, the, the sort, you know, I'm, I live on the internet. And so the things I hear black men say about R. Kelly or Cosby for a a sizable minority, a very non-silent minority of black men, the problem is not that these were cultures of harm. The problem to them is they didn't get away with it like white men do. 
So they always bring up the, you know, you know, Bill Cosby, you know, went to jail. What about Harvey Weinstein? First of all, Harvey Weinstein did 20 years. Right. He will die in prison. Let's, I don't know where you made up this idea that Harvey Weinstein got scot free. But, but that tells me that again, it's not, you know, intraracial patriarchy, which is about everything, you know, my book was about. We see a larger political movement, particularly on the internet, that incels is really, that name doesn't capture what's happening because black men who are attracted to those ideologies, they're not involuntarily celibate. What they often are, are black men who feel like if I could just get in a white man's seat, I too would have power. Yeah, this might be a good moment to turn to the chapter in your book, which deals with sexual violence at Morehouse and the way that their ideology of black masculinity was actually wielded towards the impunity for sexual violence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this was one, the article I wrote for that chapter was the hardest writing I've ever had to do in my life. It was one of those points where you're like, Maybe this is where I tap out as an academic. Like, I just can't do this. But it was because I was trying to make theories that didn't exist in terms of field. So when we look at sexual assault studies across, I would say, psychology dominates it, public health, and then sociology is a little bit behind. We very rarely, particularly when it comes to campus sexual assault, race is almost, a, it's just not a variable that's ever considered. I mean, there were only four articles I came across that considered race, and those were for the victims, not the perpetrators, right? Right. And so there was no consideration. Now I'm a masculinity scholar at my, you know, at my inception, right? To me, masculinities, hegemonic masculinities as we know it, is all about the variations amongst men, right? So to treat men as some sort of monolithic college campus demographic to me was ridiculous. We know in the literature on campus sexual assault, coming, you know, out of the 80s, really that men rape in context, right? So alcohol-infused parties are one context. Fraternities are a context. And for me, the argument was that race was another context because race also organizes not only how men sort of move throughout campus spaces, they organize their friend groups, but more importantly, they organize their ideas about gender, right? They organize their ideas about what being well-behaved is, what a good man is, and what the consequences are of sexual violence, right? So I wanted to make clear in that chapter, which I think I did, that college campuses are really a rehearsal ground for white men who learn the purchase of white masculinity and what they're getting away with, right? Brett Kavanaugh at every stage of his education learned over and over again, I'll get away with this, right? Right? No one, there is no accountability for me. And so black men have a very different idea because they are tied to that larger project about how black men are seen. So, you know, my argument in that chapter at its core was that we already know from the literature that sexual assault is a way of doing gender, right? It's a way that men, even men who don't rape, understand that they have power over people who can be raped, which is men, you know, includes other men, includes non-binary people, includes women. But race is also what's being made in sexual assault where men learn how they'll be held accountable, how they'll be seen. And they're also learning the gender politics because sexualist violence overwhelmingly is an interracial project. Overwhelmingly, people are assaulting people of their own race. And so that's really, you know, looking at Morehouse for that was really 
Morehouse has a sexual assault problem that I'm not making this up. The New York Times reported this. Chronicle of Higher Ed reported this. Morehouse kind of has a sexual assault problem like the Catholic Church has a child sexual abuse problem in that it systemically not held accountable the perpetrators. This has been going on since, you know, I was a student and since before. And when I was a student, you know, women had some, you know, we could articulate these things in the generations before they probably felt as though they had no support. Right. Now, I would say that Spelman students are so like they have like guerrilla feminism. So now there's this thing of like, oh, your institution won't hold you accountable, but we absolutely will. Nice. <laughs> so, you know, in looking at that, you have to look at how do black men in using Morehouse as the case, how do they think that sexual violence informs their ideas of what black manhood is? And that's what really, you know, that's, you know, those sort of what I found in the findings was really that sexual assault was informing their sense of black manhood as much as it was informing their sense of, you know, black womanhood. What's the content of what they're being informed about black manhood? Because I was really struck by an anecdote in your chapter where uh-huh. you talk about like the specific elitism of going to Morehouse as being seen among yeah. this subculture there yeah. as justifying sexual assault. He says, like, I think one of the students says, like, at least it was Morehouse yeah. sperm. Which is like- oh, oh, yeah. That, I mean, that, that was that was a jarring, you know, uh, quote for me, too. But it. You know, part of what we have gender asymmetry for black college students and part of the cultural, you know, consequence of that is, yeah, you get this idea that black men are this sort of chosen people in, in, you know, in college that somehow they should be treated with more impunity. As you saw in the chapter, the idea that sexual assault and sexual violence is not about the harms that it does to the victims, particularly black women, but it's about sort of the harms it does to black men, right? That they saw gender violence as a consequence for their image. And I think it was really important to understand that, you know, white men in college campuses who are perpetrators are probably not thinking like, damn, this really like, is going to be bad for white men. (laughs) They're probably not thinking that. But you have this very, it's larger than the perpetrator when you have this real coalition of men who are protecting the perpetrator because of what it says more largely about black men. And black men have a very particular history with, you know, as Angela Davis said so well, gender violence was used as a touchstone for white terrorism, right? Now, ironically, white men were overwhelmingly raping black women, but the idea that black men were rapacious and that they were predatory was used repeatedly to attack Black communities and families. And so that is all true. Both things can be true, is what I think I was trying to say in that chapter, that yes, there is a racialized terrorism of Black people's sexualities, right? We are particularly impugned for our sexuality. And also, Black men can do harm to Black women, complicating how that sort of, you know, that makes up the sauce of how they see themselves in that. So One of the things I tried to do in that article was to expand past how the literature typically deals with gender violence in terms of like, typically it's like, we know now that you don't 
ask respondents, this is like sociology methods 101 for your listeners. When you're interviewing about things like violence or trauma, you don't ask those things directly because one, we know that both men and women and non-binary people are so bad at actually defining what <laughs> what non-consensual acts are that it doesn't actually yield great data to be like, tell me about a time you raped. Yeah. Like it doesn't do anything. So we basically ask these questions and the, the theory from anthropology is where violence is, violence will emerge, right? That, that if you just ask people in the context, if violence is there, it will emerge in the data. And my whole idea was this kept coming up in context where I was talking about other things. So I would be talking to them about things like punishment, like, you know, how was, you know, how strict was the college? And they'd be talking about, well, there was a time my buddy got put out you know, for, you know, the girl lied or, you know, it, you know, it, it, it what they would say, uh, sex gone wrong mm. was their sort of wow. mediation of it. That to me was like, oh, they're taught, they're thinking about sexual assault in the context of punishment, yeah, right? That when you are a good black boy, when you're a good black man, you have gotten to college by avoiding all the things that penalize other black men are trying your best to avoid the behaviors that you see black boys getting punished for in K through 12, which are a slew of things we punish black boys for. Right. And so their idea was like, no, we're good guys. And they couldn't sort of connect <laughs> the idea of being well-behaved to sexual harm. And they certainly couldn't connect it for their friends. Right. And so this idea that like, you know, well, we don't need, you know, rape prevention strategies because Morehouse has none. Morehouse still does not have a single rape crisis counselor on campus. They don't even have wow. a LGBTQ counselor on campus. The idea that we don't need any of that stuff because good black men don't rape. And no means no. And that's what we mean. No means no is not sufficient. Right. We all know that. But that to them was like good black men don't rape. So we already know we're well behaved anyway. This might be a good moment to turn to how Morehouse's conception of good black men and good black men's behavior, like really becomes constituted in a kind of gender conformity. Oh, Cause you talk about problems faced at Morehouse by students who transition and Adrian, I thought you had a really good perspective on this as well. Oh, yeah. That chapter to me was so, so eye opening, and, and, and it really gets at this, right. I mean, like a lot of universities and colleges in the United States struggle with, especially single sex yeah, ones, yeah. you know, struggle with these issues, obviously. But I think you make a very convincing case that th there are just additional layers here and they're super interesting. Like, because as you say, adherence to manhood at Morehouse holds equal footing with academic instruction because manhood can be failed. And they very clearly treat it that way, right? There's, there's this yeah. interesting thing that students who transition during their time at Morehouse since 2019 can be in a situation where they have to plead their case to a three panel. To the president of the college. Which is great. First, actually trained in these things which is amazing to like so for our listeners who do not themselves teach at a college to anyone who teaches at a college that's recognizable as a disciplinary committee like this is what we do to students who have cheated it is very yes, clear exactly. like it's exactly. very legible and that's yeah that's that's the solution they found yeah actually your gender identity was the wrongdoing yeah. we're gonna bring you before tribunal which is more than they do for students who perpetrate sexual assault you know, again, when I say they have a Catholic church problem, 
One of the things I found was that students who are perpetrators are brought before this tribunal that also includes other students. Oh, Lord. So it's like your roommate is being like, nah, he's good. (laughs) And also to hell with the anonymity of the victim. My God. Right? And again, they say these things like, no, you know, this is what, you know, every black college does. It is not because we need to understand the context. Morehouse enacted a trans policy because Spellman enacted a trans policy. Right. Spellman's policy is considered as progressive as the Seven Sisters policy. So the Seven Sisters, you know, the Smiths, the Wellesleys, they aren't even doing this. And their policy, I think, is the best one you can have, which is we accept women, we graduate anyone, right? This is simple as that. There's no, there's no, you need to prove yourself. And their idea of accepting women, let's say you transitioned as a child, they would say there's enough sort of gender identity there to say that you have a lived experience as a woman. Now, Morehouse turns around, again, because the pressure was kind of on once Spellman had a policy. And Morehouse, instead of just copying and pasting <laughs> Spellman's policy, which they could have done, and they could have copied and pasted Smith's, but those are progressive policies, and they have in them a very intrinsic idea about gender fluidity, right? which Morehouse does not accept. Morehouse turns around and says, ha ha, we're going to, you know, they make like news for this because this is, they're saying this is very progressive, right? And they say Morehouse will accept, you know, trans men, but any other transitioning students, you know, if you're like a femme transitional, you have to go before this tribunal of the president and prove that you, you know, can stay here and and we have the right to put you out. Now, I want to make this clear. They were patting themselves on the back for solving a problem they never had. Morehouse has never had not one trans man apply to Morehouse College. What they do have is a very sizable population of genderqueer students, many of whom are femmes, many of whom are are identified women, right? So they didn't address the issue that they actually have, (laughs) right? In fact, they made that even worse. And they pat themselves on the back for a group of students they've never had. This, you know, what, what you've said was so important to me, the idea that you can fail masculinity means that, you know, in, in sociology of education, we always say that, you know, colleges have hidden curriculums, all institutions have hidden curriculums, and that the educational institution at educational, you know, at a college would be primary, and that the other stuff would be secondary. But I think that this really flipped it on its head, that really it was the cultural curriculum that was just as primary as the academic curriculum, because you could fail the cultural curriculum. So Morehouse's, you know, trans students and not just trans, really genderqueer, because remember, they're in Atlanta and Atlanta is like black San Francisco. Right. It's like a hotbed of black queerness. I would say Atlanta and New Orleans maybe, but really Atlanta because it's so much larger. And so Morehouse is basically, (laughs) I always found this funny. Maybe because I think the world is queer. I found this funny. Morehouse always approaches Atlanta as though it is, you know, battening down the hatches of Atlanta's queerness of like, <laughs> can't let all that, all that gay black Atlanta, you know, that that's our problem is we're just trying to keep those floodgates out. I'm sorry. I wish our listeners could see Seda's hand gestures <laughs> of trying to push away this imaginary flood of black gayness <laughs> uh, with like such enthusiastic force. <laughs> oh, I just, I just feel, hold on. I just spilled my coffee. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh I'm 
I'm sorry. All in an attempt to stave off the uh, the queer Atlantans. Yes. Spilling this cream into my floor. All that to say. <laughs> so, you know, the city of Atlanta is sort of the other character in this book. Morehouse also has a long relationship to Atlanta. There's a really great book by Kevin Cruz, the yeah. historian, yeah. called White Flight. And it's about Atlanta is Atlanta because Atlanta made a compromise, not the Booker T. Washington compromise. <laughs> they made a compromise as a city that they were going to have a black power structure and a white power structure. Morehouse was intrinsic to fueling that black power structure. Morehouse has produced multiple mayors of Atlanta. And there's also just this symbiosis between black leadership uh, in Atlanta and Morehouse. So as Atlanta has changed, it's very interesting that Morehouse has gone from, we are sort of the seed of Atlanta's you know, greatness to this idea of like, there's all these parts of Atlanta we don't want in. I found this very interesting that Morehouse, you know, I had a respondent who was a straight cis male who said the college is in the closet about how many students are in the closet. Mm. Wow. <laughs> that Morehouse has this huge queer undercurrent. It's a reputation they hate about themselves, right? All the other schools joke about how gay Morehouse is. You know, all the other, you know, everyone, <laughs> there was a joke on Twitter Someone said, what's the best, you know, gay club you've ever been to? And someone said, Morehouse College. <laughs> that, that the idea is like, like all gay black men have dated someone at Morehouse, but like Morehouse will never cop you. So what I found was, so, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of classic Foucault, right? The idea of when you suppress something, it only flourishes. So they suppress this queer culture, which meant that it's bubbling right beneath the surface. I say that to say Morehouse likes to think of Atlanta's queerness as being outside their gates, but actually they are very active in how queer Atlanta is. Right. They are sort of a wellspring of Atlanta's queerness. They are attracting all these young, bright men down to their college. Many of them are very active at varying degrees of outness in Atlanta's queer culture and also become you know, sort of queer leadership in Atlanta uh, at varying degrees of outness. Something that fascinated me. So for example, you know, when I was first interviewing students, they would say like, oh, you know, we talk about, you know, the dormitories because you talk about physical space when you're doing ethnography. And we talked about the dormitories and they would say, oh yeah, that's the gay dorm. And I'm thinking like, oh, they're just kind of stereotyping that dorm. And like, there's nothing really much to make about that. You know, all dorms have queer students. Wrong. What I realized was queer students, and this is the age of the internet, when they were getting accepted to Morehouse, they were going online and saying, okay, which dorm should I stay in? So this wasn't an imagination. There was an organized sexual culture at Morehouse in which queer students were organizing around safety, around solidarity, around community to have spaces. In the book, you saw me talk about Part of Morehouse's ideals about Black men are also very clearly articulated. They have this thing called the five wells, that, a, that you know, a Morehouse man is well-read, he's well-dressed, he's well-traveled, he's well-spoken. There's another well that I forget. <laughs> There's five of them, I know. All that to say, those five wells 
are every middle-aged gay man in New York City. Right. It's like their actual ideal of like what a what a perfect man is. I'm like pretty damn gay. Like enjoys the ballet and opera. Yeah. <laughs> well traveled. Like, what's the next thing gonna be? Like you're a foodie. Yeah. Like it's like it's like. But this is the this is the great paradox in that their actual. There, um, if you got into my last chapter, I talked about it. There's a class at Morehouse called Leadership and Professional Development. Yeah, yeah. It's an etiquette class. It has no academic value, right? It's a purely etiquette class about business etiquette. And it was taught for decades by a legendary Morehouse professor named Mr. McLaurin. I don't know if I can out people. <laughs> I just don't think he was that in. I think it was just sort of an open secret. And again, it kind of reminds me of like Paris is Burning with like, you get all these queer men who are teaching supermodels how to walk. They were being taught masculine, you know, etiquette by gay men. And yet that to them never registered with like, oh, maybe we need to like accept how sort of queer we are, not just sexually queer, but culturally queer. So yeah. That relationship to Atlanta is, to me, as it is Morehouse now, the through line through Atlanta and Morehouse is not only the politics of the city and the institution in terms of racial politics, but also the queer politics. The queer Black politics are the through line. It's fascinating. I love this comparison with Paris is burning, right? Because <laughs> I just showed this to my to my students last week and they were thrilled. But something that I noticed when I rewatched Paris is Burning with my students is that this gay performance culture mm -hmm. was very, very hyper fixated on studying the rules of the white upper class. Yes. And so I think what you when you talk about Morehouse's ideal masculinity as being yes, somewhat exactly. queer, <laughs> I think I think it's also very class obsessive it's very invested in suppressing class variants it's a ballroom culture for corporate nice Paris is burning i also teach it to my students every year they love it because they say oh wait a minute now i realize like this is copy and paste like yeah. every other thing i thought you know from ryan murphy what have you just it all came from yeah. black queer you know afro latin x people in new york city right so there is a scene of Paris is burning where one of the categories is executive realness that's right and and Dorian Corey, legendary mother overall of the culture, grandmother, she says what they are saying is, if I had the education, I could do that because I can look the part. Mm -hmm. Morals would never say what they're doing is executive realness, but it is executive realness. Real, nice. That class is teaching them, you know, the knots on a tie and how to hold a shrimp fork. And also, sociologically, I get very fascinated about like, so let's get into the weeds of social theory in terms of Du Bois. So one of the things I talk about in the book that becomes the sort of theoretical architecture of the book is this idea that the veil, Du Bois said that racialized people, people of color live within a veil and that they can see out of the veil, but the veil can't see into them, right? So we have a double consciousness. We see ourselves being seen all the time, right? And that really organizes even black spaces where there are no white people, we see ourselves being seen. And what you have at Morehouse, because you have black elites who are being prepared for really, you know, white dominated spaces in grad school and beyond, you have people who are sort of flush against the veil. 
So their job is not just that we see ourselves being seen, is that we're the only ones that you should see. Don't see the rest of the race. Only see us, right? And so this idea of, you know, my colleague Seamus Khan has a book uh, called Privilege. It's about uh, St. Paul's boarding school. Mm-hmm. And Seamus Khan, Seamus is a, is a sociologist of elites, and so I use his work a lot. And he talks about the culture of elites, white elites we're talking about, has really changed in the 20th century. That it went from you have to be born into this, this sort of a you know heir apparent type thing, to this meritocracy mythology about anyone can become an elite. It's just about you know hard work. That means that their spaces and their cultures have changed a lot. So when you go to the halls of St. Paul's, which is you know one of the upper crustiest boarding schools in the world, they're not playing Beethoven in their you know dining hall. They're playing Kendrick Lamar and Young Thug and Yo Gotti because their idea is we need to learn everybody's culture so that we can be your boss. Right. <laughs> it's like I need I need to be culturally competent in you people. I'm gonna one day own <laughs> right. But Morehouse really, in their idea of the veil, it just occurred to me that they have a very convoluted idea of whiteness, that their idea of whiteness is stuck in like a cartoonish Gordon Gecko 1980s idea. And many of the men, when they actually emerged into those spaces, so I had one of the one of my participants, he was a managing director at Goldman. So he was kind of one of the most successful, you know, young men out of his class right out the gate. And he was like, yo, everything Morehouse told me to expect was a damn lie. <laughs> He's like, my, I get into my you know, first job and my boss is a gay white male who, who rollerblades to work. He's like, <laughs> He's like, everything they told me about this firm handshake and this was going to be a boys club about me impressing you know, white men and that I needed to play their role. Things like they had never really thought about white women being their bosses. And like, yeah. oh, I wasn't really prepared for that. That basically they had a very convoluted idea of what the other side of the veil was going to be. So, you know, executive realness in that they're being taught, okay, you need to make small talk about Beethoven and Brahms. Right. Where, sir? Like that's, you know, like, you know, you need to, you know, learn how to, you know, take your dinner roll and not make a butter sandwich out of it. Well, I don't know what restaurants, you know, really serving dinner, I mean, Olive Garden? You know, like, it's not like, these are not really the sort of obstacles. A a deconstructed butter roll, maybe, with a... uh... (laughs) A butter roll Luke Bouche. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But But this is, you know, their sort of anxiety about the white gaze to me, actually convoluted the white gaze that they Morehouse was not actually in step with where white elites were. Yeah, they, they basically were gonna they were gonna succeed at the uh, scene in American Psycho where they all look at each other's business cards. Yes. Yeah, that yes. <laughs> they're gonna be great if they ever encounter the Monopoly Man and had to wear a monocle. Right, <laughs> they're gonna be you know great at wearing spats on their shoes. But they're at the actual culture of elites in terms of how drastically it's changed in the 20th century. Century. So, for example, I would ask them things like, you know, they were so prepared to wear a suit, right? It's Morehouse very suit obsessive. It's like, you know, you basically, you know, their whole thing against trans students was you can't show up to a job interview in a dress. Right. Basically, every argument about defending Morehouse's culture ends with the job interview question. What are you going to do with your job interview? Again, this idea that what are you going to do for white approval? First of all, there's many jobs you can show up to in a dress. Most of the jobs in creative would expect 
gender non-conforming people to dress how the fuck they want to. That's right. what we live in, right? Right. But also, if you show up to a suit in a suit to Silicon fucking Valley, you'll be laughed out of the goddamn building. Yeah. It was preparing. I think this is the irony. It was preparing black men to immediately become obsolete. Right. In what work from home culture are you wearing pinstripe suits? Right. Right. I mean, what, probably the top thing you would not do in most of these tech firms is ever show up in a suit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's Showing up in shoes is just a something, right? But like, but the idea is like they could not see how outmoded their ideas of whiteness were. And that they are preparing black men for a world that no longer existed. They are preparing black men for a world that ended in the savings and loans crash. Right. Now, is there a way to think about this as like, um, as just like watching someone perform an act of repression? I mean, that that's something that you, I thought about when you talked about like, about the closetedness of it all, yeah. that what you do see with a pinstripe suit that you don't see when someone's showing up with flip-flops is is effort. You see someone make real effort. And, and I mean, I guess that's the other thing. They're contending with a kind of a racist stereotypes of what black men yeah. look like. And you and you do mention that the, that the policy against wearing dresses is clearly modeled on the one that that is supposed to outlaw quote unquote thug outfits, right? So it's like about, I'm guessing it's mostly about pants and belts. That of course is all about, that was always sort of framed as it's about effort. So it's not like, it's not that you think, oh, I'm, I look like what they expect me to do, but I'm going to, but they're going to see that I tried. Is that, is that a thing that in the background here? Yeah. Yeah. They're going to see that again, like executive realness, I can conform. Right. You know, and that I will put in that effort to conform. Right. Right. Um, they're going to see that I won't be a problem. You know, you'll never have to correct me on the length of my pants. You'll never have to correct me on my shirt being untucked. Right. I won't be a problem. That cultural curriculum that is so dominant in their undergrad years becomes an idea that cultural curriculum is the most important, you know, part of their adult lives too. Right. Right. Which mm. for many of the men, in my study, because black men are dynamic and they continue to evolve. Some of them talk about unlearning right, right. about, you know, basically the expectations of the world that Morehouse set them up for were not the world they encountered. And that there were many, for example, they had to unlearn the gendered expectations that Morehouse right. set them up with when they got married. So, you know, for, for my participants who were married to women, they were like, yo, like, <laughs> they're like, I basically do what my wife tells me. Um, we both have to change diapers. We both have to make dinner. You know, it's like, they're like, this idea of like, this black woman was gonna, you know, support me as a king. And, and you know, they're like, no. When like, when you got two kids in yeah. strollers, gender roles go out the door. Like, it's like, you know, again, like what they were prepared for, the Morehouse man is a mythology. And so all the accoutrements of that mythology preparing them for a mythologized life that they did not have. And the thing about the Morehouse man as a prototype is, you know, I, I talk about it being akin to like, you know, a Marlboro man or a James Bond, right. that these are all mythologies about men that are unattainable, right? No one actually embodies it, but it's held over their heads as though like this is, you know, you should ascribe to this and measure yourself by your distance to or proximity to this mythology. But it's not attainable. And so it's very crushing for them. Right. Or it's liberating for them to say that was a myth. <laughs> you know? The people who were imposing that myth did not uphold that myth. 
In bed with the right, would like to thank the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research for generous support. Jennifer Portillo for setting up our studio. Our theme music is by Katie Lau. Our producer is Megan Kalfas. 